Many of you are aware that we are in the middle of accepting resumes for an associate pastor here at the church. You know, we've been in this process for some time now, and, uh, you know, their main job is going to be microphones. And so <laughs> that's going to be their main responsibility. All they're going to do each week is make sure the microphone works. And so, but we, uh, we're excited about it. Honestly, honestly, we really are. We're optimistic. I know it's taken some time to kind of to look for somebody and to find somebody, but I do believe that, you know, sometimes patience is a, is a virtue in this type of search, you know, and so instead of hiring the first person that we find, rather find the right person. And sometimes, like, my philosophy is just, let's get the best person that we can for this job, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, you know, I think it's kind of like the NFL draft. You know, sometimes you just, you just pick the best player. You know, you just, it doesn't matter if you need a quarterback. If Patrick Mahomes is there, you just draft him. You know what I mean? Like, who cares if you have Alex Smith? Like, you know, Patrick Mahomes is just better. You just pick the guy. You know what I mean? And so it's not a brain, you know, teaser. It's just pick the right person. And sometimes, like, the same thing with ministry. You know, you just find the right person, the best person for the job. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter, you know, just pick, pick the right person. I do have, like, standards, though, right? I mean, like, there is certain things that you want from a leader. I, have, I told you this before, but I have, like, like, the four C's for leadership, for Christian leadership. It's calling, character, commitment, and competency. I want those four things in each person that I hire. I want them to be called by God. I want them to have godly character. I want them to be competent, and I want them to be committed to the work. I'll give you an example of this. When we looked at hiring an administrative assistant, we had tons of resumes come in, tons of applications, and I mean, we were overwhelmed by it. And it was kind of like, you know, you know we don't get that many resumes for like an associate pastor position or even like a youth pastor or, or anything else. But when we applied, when we sent this uh, add out for a administrative assistant, we got bombarded with resumes. And some of those were really good and some of them were not so good. But we interviewed, you know, I don't think we interviewed a dozen people, but probably eight or ten people. And the last person that we interviewed was Julie. And I looked at her resume and I looked at everybody else's resume and I'm like, man, this person has so much more experience. I mean, she worked at one place for 20 years. One, what, does, what does that say about her commitment? You know? And then I looked at her volunteer work at her church and how she served at the same church for years and years and years. I looked at her resume and there was not one grammatical error that I could find. And it was just presented so well, you know. And then when she came in, you could just see her character and you could see her love for her family, her love for her Lord. It's like, this is... This is a no-brainer, right? And three months in, and it's like, man, we could see the competency that she has, you know. And, and so when you find somebody like Julie, you're like, man, that's, that's, that's who you want to hire. It's not brain surgery. It's just that's the right person, the best person for the job. But I do think, like, out of those four Cs, the, the calling and the character are the two most important. You know, if they're not called by God, if they don't have... Christian character. I don't care if they're the best preacher or the best teacher in the world. If what they say on Sunday morning doesn't match up with who they are on Monday, do we really want them, right? 
So if there's any hesitation in those first two, any at all, then they're out. Does that mean that he has to be perfect? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that he needs to love his neighbor. He needs to be patient with others. He needs to be slow to speak and slow to anger. He knows how to treat the least of these. He needs how to treat the least of those out in the community. I think in our passage of scripture for today, Paul is saying that there are some people who are in leadership at the church in Corinth who may have all the competency, competency in the world, who may be committed to the work, but they are lacking in character. And in turn, Paul is questioning their calling into ministry. This isn't what he says in the first part of this chapter. We're going to kind of break this up into, into three sections. Honestly, I could probably preach this chapter into three sermons, but I'm going to kind of do it in one sermon today. But I think by doing this, we can see the big picture that what Paul is trying to get the church in Corinth to understand. That's why I wanted to kind of do this whole entire chapter to you today, for you to be able to understand the context a little bit better and to be able to see exactly what Paul is trying to get at here. Verse 1, this, how, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his condemnation from God. In verses 1 to 5, Paul is dealing with Christians judging their spiritual leaders. Isn't that what you want today is to know how to judge your spiritual leaders? I mean, you're going to get right now a lesson on how to judge me and how people like me. That's pretty awesome, right? Paul says here in verse 1, this is how you should regard us. The word for regard in Greek is lag isiomai. It means to count, to calculate, to judge. In these reality TV competitions, um, there's usually a panel of judges, right? that are tasked with the responsibility of finding the person that's going to go to Hollywood. In ministry, there isn't a Simon Cow that you have to go through, right? I mean, there, there isn't like a, a panel that, like, you're, you're, you know, you're going to Hollywood. There, there isn't a Simon Cow there, but there is an ordination process that you have to go through. Right? I mean, ministers, in order to, to be ordained in the ministry, to be able to be called a pastor, a reverend, you have to go through an ordination process. Here Paul is saying, this is how you judge someone who is currently in ministry. Paul calls such men servants of Christ, stewards of the ministry, of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
When God calls you into ministry, not just vocational ministry, but any type of ministry, but especially vocational. When, if some of you are here today and you're thinking, maybe God is calling me into ministry. And that's not, I, I hope I don't say this and no one thinks that's the case. Like there's nobody in here that's being called into ministry. Friends, let me tell you something. I truly do believe that God is still calling men and women from the pew to the pulpit. Okay? I really do believe that. That God is calling men and women to ministry. Maybe God is calling you into ministry. If he is, know that it's a call to serve. We're all called into ministry. We're all called into to serve, friends. It's all part of our responsibility, our faith. But some of us are called into vocational ministry. And if that's the case, it's not a, a calling into prosperity. It's not a calling into a show business. It's not a call to Hollywood, to fame and fortune. It is a call to service. To come and to serve. It's not power and prestige. It's to be a servant. It's to be responsible. Here he says, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of the gospel. To be a steward means like you're a, a house manager. Like you're a manager of the house. That's what it that literally it translates to. Why is that? Why is Paul calling them stewards, house managers? Because the church was meeting in where? Houses. Friends, some of you might be uncomfortable with the idea of having a Bible study outside these four walls. <laughs> you know? Might be uncomfortable leading a small group from your home or going to somebody else's small group. Going to a Bible study at somebody's... I mean, friends, let me tell you that the church grew in people's homes. I mean grew, multiplied by thousands of people because they were meeting in home to home. It'll be okay, okay? It might be outside your comfort zone. It might be something that you're not used to, but it's okay. I think, let me say this. The more that we do out there, outside of these four walls, the better it will be in here. The more that we do in our community, the better it will be in our church. George Truett, longtime pastor of First Baptist Dallas, once preached that our city saved means salvation of civilization. Our city's loss means the corruption and destruction of civilization. One of my hopes and prayers for this year is that we are out in our city more than we've ever been before. That we do more activities, more outreach, outside of these four walls, outside of this property than we've ever done before. That we use our resources, our budget, our people to reach this community. Paul says that one of the qualifications for being a minister 
The one that is required of them is to be faithful. The only thing that he says that's required of a minister, of a church leader, he says here, is to be faithful. The Greek word here is pistos. It's the same word to trust or to believe, which is pistio. Notice that Paul doesn't say that he has to be a Jew or a Greek. He doesn't say he has to be male or female. He doesn't say that he has to be black or white. He doesn't say tall, dark, and handsome. He doesn't say rich and powerful. He says the steward, the servant, must be faithful to their God. He must be trustworthy. He must be obedient. He must be faithful. He must be faithful to the word of God. He must be faithful to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, as Christians, the most fundamental and elementary thing that we can do is to be faithful. Why? Because God is faithful to you. I mean, friends, God is faithful to you. Imagine if he wasn't. Would you follow him? I mean, if God wasn't faithful to you, would, he, would you want to be a part of this faith? Of course not. But God is steadfast in his love and faithfulness to you. And he expects you, in return, to be faithful to him. And he definitely expects men like myself to be faithful and true. For their character to be in line with their calling. Let's look at the second group at verses, verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brother, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What did you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And I wish that you did reign so that you might share this rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Paul starts his passage out by contrasting the proud Corinthian leaders to that of the faithful and trustworthy leadership that he and Apollos exhibits and men like them. In verse 6, he says that he has applied all that he has said to his own life, and that Apollos has done the same. Paul says that they are making, they are examples of not being arrogant, proud, and they do not make their ministry about themselves. Starting in verse 7, Paul is really on this attack, though, of the character of these house leaders. He asks the question, did you receive this knowledge and wisdom on your own, or did you receive it from somebody else? Friends, I hope you don't think that I'm like this pastor that, that knows everything. That I, I sat down one day, God called me in the ministry, and the next day I had all this wisdom and knowledge from God because he called me into the ministry. 
And I, like, I just sit in my office and just pin out these sermons from this database of knowledge that's in my head. I got, I mean, I went to seminary for years. I have common, my, my, my bookshelves are filled with other people's writings on these texts. I mean, it's been hours each week looking and researching and trying to understand this passage of Scripture so that you might be able to better understand it. If I didn't have these tools, if I didn't have these countless men and women investing into my life, I mean, I'd be in tough shape, friends. I mean, to do what I do each week. For some reason, these men thought they were in some great position of leadership because they did something. They were someone. Rather than they acknowledge what God had done for them, the grace that he bestowed upon them. Paul says in verse 8, you act like kings, but you're not. I wish you were, though, he says. I mean, I wish that you were so we could benefit from your greatness. <laughs> Just a little bit of sarcasm here, do you think? Listen to the comparison, though, between the faithful and those in Corinth filled with pride in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. <laughs> Amen or ouch, friends. How many of us are considered the scum of the world? How many of us are persecuted? How many of us are poorly dressed? How many of us are homeless, slandered, hungered, thirsty, hated because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? <laughs> So many of the earliest Christians were hated because of their unwillingness, friends. They were considered haters of mankind because of their unwillingness to back down from their belief in Jesus Christ as Lord. Because they were unwilling to hold back on their convictions. Haters of mankind. Friends, the in Corinth, it was, a, it was a melting pot of different cultures. I mean, in Corinth, it was, you could just, there's so many different religions, so many different beliefs, and there was just cultural expectation that you were to accept everything and everyone and not to be able to you should not condemn. You should not speak against. You should not stand up for what you believe in. You should not tell other people that they are wrong. Even when asked. You should actually participate in what they're doing. That was the expectation. And if you're unwilling to follow, if you're unwilling to observe, unless you were un, if you're unwilling to participate, 
then you are deemed a hater of mankind. I think in our world today, especially in the United States, as of late, we're living in a post-Christian society where there are a growing majority of people who are shocked and repulsed that people have Christian morals, values, and ethics that they stand behind. If you say, some, if you say to yourself or you say to other people, rather, I'm a Christian, most people aren't repulsed by that. They just, I mean, they're just not. But if you share with them the, the word of God, if you share with them your convictions, what you stand behind, if you hold true to it, are you not mocked? Are you not treated like scum? Are you not hated? Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere and in every church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not to talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Why do you, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? And this final verses, 14 to 21, Paul discusses his authority and his plans to travel in light of his opponent's charges against them. He starts out this passage with a, an admonish. His desire to admonish them, not to shame them, but to what? To warn them. Make no mistake about it, friends. This is a warning. Paul says, I'm coming. And I'm going to come whether with, with an iron rod or with love. You better make a decision on what it's going to be. Because when I come, it's going to be one or the other, friends. <sighs> powerful words from a powerful man. And Paul was their spiritual father. He says, hey, I'm the one that planted this church here. I'm the one that gave birth to you, you know? God called me here to plant a church, and that's what I did. Like, I'm responsible for you, is what Paul is saying here. I'm responsible. And I'm not going to allow for this to take place here. I'm not going to. This arrogancy, this lack of leadership, I won't allow it, he says. I've sent my disciple, Timothy, to you. And Timothy was, Paul was Timothy's father as well, spiritual father. So Timothy knew him very well, knew his desires, knew his expectations for the church in Corinth. And Timothy knew the church in Corinth, the condition. 
their situation. That's why Paul sent them there. Paul was a, a man of his word. I, uh, I don't know about you, but I think when I hear Paul speak, <laughs> I don't know if I have somebody like that in my life, you know, that, that's willing to uh, speak to me as a spiritual father. That if I do something wrong, if I act a certain way, as willing to say, hey, if you don't straighten up here, bud, I'm going to whoop your behind. Like, I just don't know if, do you have people like that in your life? A spiritual mentor that will speak to you with love and with truth and that when necessary to be harsh? The goal here isn't, friends, for Paul to say, hey, look at me, look how great I am. The goal here is for them to be faithful men and women. To be a church that is true, that's on the right, that's growing, that's maturing in their faith, that's making disciples. It's not for Paul to say, look at me, look how great I am, look how terrible you are. It's not that at all. Paul has a desire to see restoration in this church, to see it become the church that God desired for it to be. Corinth was, a, again, it's a melting pot. People were coming and going at a rapid place there. It could be a church where the gospel could leave and go to the ends of the earth. And it had that type of power. It had that type of capability, that potential, where the gospel could come in to Corinth, and it could leave, and it could go to the ends of the earth. And Paul's like, man, if, if that's going to be the case with this church, that's going to be ascending agent to the ends of the earth, I want me to make sure that the gospel that's being shared, the gospel that's being showed, is the true gospel. Not a false prosperity, not a, a, an arrogancy, but one of love, one of service, and one of responsibility. I, uh, I had to ask my wife, for permission to share this story with you today. I, uh, my wife and I, we, uh, we usually, we ride separately here to church on Sunday morning. Sometimes we'll ride together, but usually we don't. And uh, it's kind of silly. You know, we live four minutes away and uh, we usually get here within five minutes of each other. And uh, we leave usually with, within five minutes of each other. And so, uh, but I asked her today, I said, hey, you want to ride together? And uh, she goes, well, I, I can't. I mean, you can, but I'm going to be doing my uh, vocal warm-ups. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to go with you then. And uh, <laughs> have you all watched the movie Dumb and Dumber where they pick up the hitchhiker and they ask them, have you ever heard the most annoying sound in the world? <laughs> like, this is... This is more annoying than that. Like, it is, it's, and I, I understand why she does it, you know. I think Kathy has a beautiful voice, 
And but this vocal warm-ups, they cannot find a more annoying sound. And I just it gives me a headache and I can't do it. And uh, I asked Kathy this morning, I said, what do I do that annoys you? And she goes, absolutely nothing. So I mean there's that. So <laughs> We only have one that works right now. I can't do that. So, uh, listen, you know, in our relationships with other people, especially our spouses, we all do things that are annoying, right? And uh, we annoy each other. We get on each other's nerves and we get under each other's skin. And there are times where we have arguments and uh, we share our feelings with each other. And we see the worst in each other. Uh, at the same time, like, you see the best in each other as well. And uh, you see their character, and you see their love and faithfulness. Friends, make no mistake about it. God knows your heart. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than your spouse knows you. He knows you better than your mama knows you. He knows you. He knows why you're doing the things that you do. He knows your motives. He knows why you're here today. You can't fool them, friends. You can't. And regardless of what your society, regardless of what your family, your friends think, he has an expectation of you to be faithful, to be true. And friends, there is no better place on this earth than being faithful. There just isn't. You can search the entire world, friends, for joy, for happiness, for peace, and there is nothing that will come close than to being obedient to your Father. No love, no joy, no happiness, no peace comes close to being faithful to your God. He loves you so much, friends. And this journey that we're on, it's not always easy. It's a call to come and be the scum of the world, to come and die. Come and be hated and persecuted, being vile and left for dead. It's not come and be at the top of the food chain. It's a come and die. Take this cross and follow me.
wow, what a death it is, friends. What a death. Father, we give you thanks for the day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together in this place and to recognize our need for you. Father, I pray that we each today understand who we are in relationship to you. That we see your, your love, your kindness, your generosity, your character on full display here today. And Father, help us to understand where we are in relationship to you. If there's someone here today that's never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I do pray that today would be that day. And they would come forward and they would acknowledge their need for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's a believer that's here today that has character is out of line of their profession of faith, I pray that they would repent of that sin, that they would turn away from it, and that they would follow you. Father, give us the grace today to be faithful, to be honest. Father, we love you, and we pray all these things in your name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.